Is journalism more dangerous now than it ever has been? It's fair to say it's never been the safest of professions. Journalists by their very nature are curious and are frequently required to enter dangerous environments in the search for truth. And as an industry, journalists and media organisations are well versed and experienced in mitigating the threats of those situations. But as we've seen over the past weeks and months in conflict zones around the world, when fighting does break out, journalists are always in danger and no amount of mitigation can ever fully ensure their safety. But journalists are now more exposed to their audience than ever before, with social media leading to a proliferation of online violence directed towards journalists, particularly women journalists. So how does this online violence intersect with physical violence? Is the media industry as equipped in dealing with the new threats to journalist safety as they are with the older ones? And most importantly, how does this all impact the journalists themselves, their reporting and ultimately democracy? I'm Harry Locke and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. This episode is the second in a two-part series of Media Uncovered focusing on journalist safety. And if you haven't already, I would encourage you to listen to the previous episode, which focused specifically on digital safety. This episode is a recording of a panel session hosted by PMA, CBC Radio Canada and Canada House, which took place earlier this month in London, in part to commemorate 100 years of public service media. My name is Hannah Storm. I'm delighted to be here, delighted and humbled to be here. I'm the former director of the International News Safety Institute and a consultant and trainer specialising in journalism safety, online harassment and mental health. Recently, I've been working with CBC Radio Canada on their Not OK, Sit Assez campaign, calling out the online abuse and harassment which journalists experience. For today's panel, I'm joined by senior reporters and staff from some of the world's biggest news and public service media organisations. Joyce Adeloe Adams, is the global editor of Newsroom Diversity at Reuters. Margaret Evans is a correspondent with CBC Radio Canada who has covered and reported from a number of war zones. And most recently, she's been in Ukraine covering the Russian invasion. Isabel Higgins is a European correspondent for, for the Australian Broadcast Corporation, where she too has been in Ukraine recently covering the conflict. Before she moved into that role last year, she was for several years the ABC's National Indigenous Affairs Correspondent, where she won a National Press Award for her reporting on youth suicides. And Mike Wendling is the editor of the BBC World Service programme Trending, which investigates the fringes of social media. Thank you all for joining me. You each come from diverse journalistic backgrounds and deal with different types of safety issues. So I'd like to ask for your perspectives on the current issues that you're facing in terms of safety and that your colleagues are facing too. Margaret, you've been working on the ground in Ukraine. Physical safety is clearly an issue in war zones and always has been, but what extent are there additional pressures on you as journalists brought about by the need to report across different types of media, for instance, and juggle the pressures of online warfare as well? Well, thank you, and thank you, everybody. Hello. Thanks for having me. Ukraine, of course, is a challenge in that it is a classical war. That, so you have all of the safety uh, issues that you would have covering any kind of a conflict. In terms of the misinformation 
campaign from Russia, and on some levels we didn't have to deal with it too much on the ground because we were surrounded by Ukrainians. It did kind of trickle down to um, a very kind of nuanced level in that you would meet, obviously, every Russian-speaking Ukrainian person that we met would say to us, our families in Russia don't believe us. They say we're bombing our own country. So you, you did meet that, but you also had to answer to people, the Ukrainians, disturbed for obvious reasons about the narrative coming from the Kremlin, which is that this is a country that, you know, we're going in to basically get rid of the Nazis. So if you would, a number of, of battalions in Ukraine fighting used to belong to far-right groups. So if you're trying to add that context in your journalism, immediately the people in Ukraine would go to what Vladimir Putin was saying. This is, this is a lie, it's not true. Why are you worrying about where this person in your story might be coming from? So that, for me, that was quite an interesting challenge because even some of the people that we were working with didn't want you to go down that road, even though you were nowhere near where it started. So it, it was a combination, but right now, the real threat to journalists there is that it is a very, very aggressive and violent war. And I guess just, I mean, we had a chat last week and we were talking about some of the pressures in terms of the extra media, the extra supply that we have to give as journalists. Does that impact on your ability to stay safe as well? It does in terms of fatigue and the decisions that the broadcasters or newspapers are making when they're sending somebody in. But this is a kind of a broadcast question. I started out as a radio journalist. I now do television and digital. We are fortunate at the CBC in that we still have and value field producers. There's some of them in the audience there. But it's, it's a huge pressure and it makes it, you know, simple things like if you're going to cover a war zone, you, now we have to go with security. You go with a translator. Then you have a three-man crew, a cameraman, editor, a radio journalist. Even in terms of how many people you can send to the war zone, it becomes expensive. And that's why you're, you're filing for three platforms. And so it, it can become an added pressure for sure. Joyce, so you're editor of Newsroom Diversity at Reuters. Um, and given the global nature of Reuters' work, how important is it that we look at safety through a slightly different lens, perhaps, than the broader kind of traditional sense of safety being war zones, hostile environments? Yeah, I think it's for, for us at Reuters, it's very important. As you said before, we're in 200 locations. So the world is focused on Ukraine at the moment, quite rightly so. It has huge global implications and journalist safety there is, is a priority. But, you know, as I'm looking at the figures globally, you know, certainly from the CPJ that came out when they, their final count of the uh, number of journalists who were killed last year, which was 45 of journalists and media workers, the vast majority of those are local journalists covering news in their home country. This year alone, we've had 11, not us personally, but there's been 11 journalists who were killed in Mexico alone of the 32 that were killed. So I, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that being a journalist outside of the West 
can be incredibly, incredibly dangerous. As most people probably know, we've had a couple of journalists who were arrested um, in Myanmar. We, there, there's also the Ethiopian war going on. We had visual journalists who was um, arrested there also. Local journalists are targeted over and above foreign correspondents. And with foreign correspondents, we can probably pull them out quite quickly. So for us, you know, making sure, ensuring that our local journalists are um, safe and secure is um, incredibly important, but not just the physical threats also, there's a psychological safety as well that we need to make sure that we're looking after also. Mike, um, in recent years, we've seen a real rise in attacks against journalists online. Can you share a little bit about what you and your team do and have to deal with, really, in terms of those attacks? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, not to get sort of too historical, but it's nearly 10 years since BBC Trending was founded. Our first real sort of attempt to uh, cover social media for its own sake, the political and social movements that were happening on social media. And it sounds remarkable now, but at the time, we didn't really sort of um, think of abuse. Because if you, if you rewind 10 years ago, social media was being used for the Arab Spring and for, you know, liberation movements and uh, women's rights and things like this. And this is, you know, sort of the, the sparkling new future that everybody... Not everybody. Of course, there was dissenting voices. But as journalists, we saw a new hope for, for social media. And of course, that quickly turned sour. So from, from the very beginning of this unit, we noticed that there was uh, people who were not very friendly to our coverage, journalists in general, the mainstream media. We quickly kind of cottoned on to, to um, the kinds of things that were happening. And of course, now I also wear a, a different hat um, as part of the disinformation team. And the combination of a, a specific sort of specialty into, in disinformation and the COVID uh, pandemic, meaning that a lot of people have been spending a lot of time online and um, have not been very happy, seems to have increased the amount of online abuse. The brunt of it uh, from our team, uh, I mean, all members of my team have at, at some point received abuse for stories they've done, right? Uh, because I write a lot about extremism and the alt-right, certainly that comes with sort of uh, a large amount of risk. But uh, Mariana, who couldn't be here today, uh, has kind of borne the brunt of it. I tend to say that, you know, she's young and female, and that's part of it. But there's other young female reporters who work for the BBC who don't get nearly as much vitriol and abuse as she does. Certainly it's that com the combination of that combined with the beat that she does, the disinformation beat. So we find that actually we're more of a target online and the physical stuff definitely is a concern at some points, but I'm actually a lot more concerned with sort of the mental health aspect of how this affects journalists and it affects nearly every journalist today. Mariana Spring did a really powerful panorama program, um, I think back in October, and there was a point in which she spoke quite openly about the emotional toll it was taking on her. In my other life, I run an organization called Headlines Network, and we have a podcast coming out this week with Mariana, at which she talks more about that fact that it really is hurting us. Online harassment really is hurting us as journalists, and I'm, it's so critical that you mention that. Thank you. And I think in some ways as journalists, you know, many of us feel like it's part and parcel of our job to accept this online vitriol, and it's not. It really oughtn't to be. And I think it's so important that as a community, we kind of are able to normalize the conversation, as Marianne has said, and you've said as well, you know, and actually say that this is not normal. The conversation should be normal, but the attacks against us shouldn't be normal. I, I totally agree, and you know, I find actually, 
I, I don't want to sort of um, dunk on the younger people, but it's a generational thing. People who don't know anything about the sort of history of this stuff, who are maybe in their 20s, they've been a journalist for maybe five years, they tend to think that it's all normal. I, in fact, I had a reporter come to me the other day, and uh, we were just discussing some uh, other story, and she said, you know, oh yeah, I got a whole lot of online abuse, but I guess that's just being a journalist in this day and age. I said, whoa, no, wait a second. This should not be being a journalist in, in this day and age. You should not be getting this. Let's go through about what we can do about it. Thank you. A really important reminder. Um, Isabella, I'm coming to you now. This, I mean, this year, as we heard before, marks a century of the BBC and 100 years of public broadcasting. And yet in recent years, we've seen a real global reckoning, and I suppose, in terms of what newsrooms should look like and how they represent our audiences. But to what extent are we doing enough to protect the very people, the journalists, who are being asked to play this kind of intermediary role between communities and the newsrooms? Uh, well, that's an excellent question. First of all, I'll probably just tell you a bit about where I come from. I am from the Torres Strait Islands. It's a small group of islands on the very tip of Australia. They're an Aboriginal First Nations community. And where I came from, people didn't read the news, not because they're not smart or intelligent people, but because it didn't represent them. They felt misrepresented. It wasn't in the language that they speak. So then when you join an organisation as someone from this community, it's almost like, oh, goody, you know, you can go in and you can do those stories now because it's really hard for us. And of course, when you're from that community, you know that there are very real issues and you want to do a good job. And particularly as a young journalist, you give your everything to trying to represent these communities well but you sort of put yourself in an unwinnable position where you have the expectations of an old media institution and you have the expectations of your community and you start to realise that not everyone's idea of being fair and objective is the same. You put a story out and you think you've worked as hard as possible to meet those metrics, but other people don't agree with you. And in the world that we live in, they can let you know pretty quickly and... It's not just suddenly before you know it, you are the subject of a pile-on on Twitter. You go into work and people say, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, the story was great. But you feel this deep dissatisfaction from the community that, yet again, the media has let them down. Thank you, Isabella. Joyce, I saw you nodding a lot um, there. Did you want to pick up on that? I mean, I think that's a very good point. I think, you know, the intersectionality within journalism is really important. You know, so we talk about a lot of online abuse, particularly geared towards women, but, you know, black women and women of colour tend to get it a lot more from both sides, you know, because you're seen as representing a community and in a majority white newsroom. And so the pressure that that is put on you, um, and so if they don't agree with your story, you get it, um, and, you know, they're not afraid to tell you what they think, and you're labeled a traitor and all the other things and then you get it also from the other side as well so it's almost like a double slap in the face and I don't think we talk about the intersectionality enough of online abuse and I think that's one of the areas that I would love to see much more work done because there is a hierarchy as it were and I hate to use that word but there is in terms of online abuse of who gets it the most but we just don't talk about it enough to really understand. I think we often view diversity as a nice ideal, something that we should do to be fair, but I very much think diversity is actually about survival of journalism too, about protecting our institutions, making sure that we are relevant, that people want to fund us, that they listen to us, 
that we can continue to do the work that we do. I don't think that's going to happen unless we represent. I'm interested to see how we got to this point around some of the safety challenges being so broad and so diverse. I mean, journalism, I suppose, has always come with a level of risk, but it feels overall less safe. Rise of online harm, the stresses brought about by, the, by COVID, the pandemic, attacks on journalists, some of them licensed by politicians as well. And, you know, vicarious trauma. We've seen a lot of kind of the threat of vicarious trauma in recent months around the coverage of Ukraine, to name but a few risks and threats to us. I'm going to come back to you, Joyce, um, for a moment, because yours is a global newsroom where you rely on local expertise. And yet the pandemic has brought something that's impacted all of us, but all of us differently, hasn't it? I mean, how has... COVID impacted the decisions and the conversations that you've been having around safety in your newsroom? I mean, first of all, we want to keep our journalists safe. If you remember when the world locked down, journalists were one of the few people that were at the front line along with all the hospital workers and documenting what was going on. And I think it was a very difficult time because suddenly for the first time all journalists around the world found themselves part of the story and and that was very difficult to sort of cover something that was both professional and personal we we were all sort of there was this mass global trauma going on essentially and journalists were not exempt from that so they lost loved ones um, we've had journalists who've not been able to leave their um, host country for two years, particularly in places like China, where they've had to continue covering um, COVID, but not being able to see their friends and family. So the psychological impact on, on them is why psychological safety and mental health is really, really important. When you're talking about the physical safety of journalists, um, and you know, I agree, we need to talk about it a lot more. So the, the cumulative effect that journalists have faced during COVID has been really intense. You know, that coupled with the 24-hour crush of the news cycle, and they're always on. So you've got the digital overload as well. And, you know, making sure that our journalists really know how to cope with that. And a lot of our journalists, majority of our journalists are incredibly resilient. And again, looking at it from a global lens, some will talk about their mental health quite openly. Others, depending on you know the generation or the cultural background that they come from, may not want to talk about it. So again, being able to um, ensure that we are providing a, an environment within our newsroom that provides that psychological safety that they can actually talk about their mental health, which I think is a big part of it when you're t when you think about the impacts of you know vicarious trauma, PTSD cumulative anxiety, digital overload, et cetera, et cetera, that we are, none of us are immune from, but because of journalists are on the front line, they get hit with it time and time and time again. Thank you. Um, I just want to move back to you, Mike, if that's okay, because while we were just talking then, you were talking about the kind of emotional impact of this. But the last two years, we've really seen this ramping up, haven't we? You know, this, this kind of attacks on journalists ramping up, the anti-vaxxers, the kind of, the, all of the kind of stuff around the disinformation, around the, the issues and, and conspiracy theorists, etc. When, we when I was speaking with Mariana last week, she said one of the things that helps her cope was this sense of feeling that her job was super duper important, that it was kind of like this sense of she's doing something really important to help support those who are impacted in a way worse than her. To what extent is that your yeah. experience as well? Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. Um, but, you know, that, that can also be very tough. I'll be honest. It's, the last two years for me have not been very good. Um, I had to take some time off last year. It's just the cumulative effect of all this stuff. Yeah, having a mission, having a purpose, that's great. But, you know, as individual journalists, it only goes so far. 
I'm, I recall me and Mariana were sort of um, in early 2020, just about two years ago, covering the, the seeds of this anti-vax, anti-mainstream media, quote, um, movement. And, the, you know, it was a couple dozen people around the corner from here. Uh, within six months, there was 10,000 people in Trafalgar Square and then, you know, these large marches. At every stage, the amount of abuse that was directed towards us online certainly ramped up. So, you know, it's kind of difficult to say in that situation, well, you know what, we are having an effect in beating back the disinformation. Fortunately, we've had, you know, successes, and that's not sort of, you know, the, the, the legacy that we sort of think of. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle. Um, I'd just like to take a moment to just acknowledge what you've just said there, because I think it's incredibly brave and powerful to be able to speak openly about your own the, the toll on your own mental health. So thank you for just referencing that 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 fact. It it's you know, often we feel very isolated when we're experiencing issues with our mental health. We feel very alone. It comes with a great degree of shame. I've had PTSD myself from my journalism and personal experiences, and I think it's super important that that we're able to just kind of set that out there. So so thank you ever so much for that. I, I you know I I have to as as a manager if I am talking to my employees and. All of them have come under sort of attack online. And the, the best thing that I can do is acknowledge it publicly, right? And show that I, at least to some degree, I know what they're going through, you know? It's very, very personal for everyone. It'll be very, very personal for, for, for everybody who gets it and situations are different, but at least I can sort of reach out in that way. Margaret, how have you seen kind of conversations around psychological resilience, mental health and well-being kind of change in the last, in, in the kind of period of time where you've been working in journalism? And how important do you think it is that we're slightly more able to kind of address these conversations? Well, I mean, we talk about it now, but I, I must admit, I find it actually quite a confusing subject sometimes. You know, I know myself enough to know I'm probably one of the ones that just blurges on, barrels ahead. And maybe 10 years later, I'll think about a trauma. I, I had a an experience in northern Iraq in 2004 where I was in a convoy bombing. 17 Kurdish soldiers died in that convoy bombing and it took me 10 years to think about it. And, and, and I'm okay with that. So as Mike was saying, you know, it's, it's very different for, very, for different people, but it is important. And it is important to know that we have the resources that our, our employers make available to us. But I would also say, you know, we have phone numbers that we can call, an example, same incident, you know, after this bombing, you know, somebody from Toronto calling and saying, are you fine, are you fine, and you're, I'm fine, do you want to carry on? Yes, I'm going to carry on. But this ins there was an insistence that I talk with the, the, at the time it was the community nurse, and I said, well, I have to climb to the roof of the hotel, get a satellite phone going up when there are planes circling overhead, when I've just been bombed by, it was a U.S. plane, it was a friendly fire incident, you know, as it stands. So news organizations, those who can afford it, are being very conscientious. Sometimes at the bottom end of that, it seems like there's a lot of outsourcing going on. And it is important. You, you have companies hired people to look after your mental health. It needs to be accompanied by the managers that are dealing with you on a day-to-day -day basis as well. You need somebody to pick up the phone and say, are you okay? Somebody you know and trust and, know, and somebody who knows 
what you've gone through on the ground in terms of the risks you're facing, the decisions you're making, the workload you have, you know, the fact that you're going to sleep at four o'clock in the morning and you're getting up four hours later. And it needs to be that combination. So I think we're working towards that at the CBC. We're getting hopefully the best of both worlds, but it's a reminder that it's not just the, the people who are in the conflict zones. You actually need people on the other end who've been through what you're going through, and that will make it easier for people to talk about what they're going through. This kind of, I think, feeds quite well perhaps into what I wanted to ask you, Isabella. I mean, you've, you've, you've worked as the National Indigenous Affairs Correspondent and, and, and you've more recently worked in, in Europe. Um, you know, how, how prepared have you felt and supported have you felt in terms of people speaking the language of the experiences you might have in your newsroom? Uh, I would say from very early on, I felt like very few people I could talk to truly about how I was feeling. I always felt like I had to go in and put a face on, put a mask on, like I could never truly reveal what I was feeling, probably also because there was this mixed element of race in there and also class as well. Like often you walk into a newsroom and it is highly educated white people. So when you are not from that background, you become very good at putting a face on, I think. So when I was reporting in Australia, it took me a long time to build a network of people. And I think the organisation I work for, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, have come a really long way in the 10 years that I've been there. And we have staff conferences and things like that that actually make a really big difference when you have friends who you work with, who you can talk to about those sorts of issues. And it's sort of as you were saying, Margaret, you want to be able to talk to someone who, when you reveal what you're going through or what you're feeling, don't look at you like you've grown a second head. That's really important too about having managers who understand and who are willing to talk to you about this sort of stuff, the hard stuff, because it's not so easy. And I think in my experience recently in covering Ukraine, I actually found there were more people in my organisation who I could talk to because this idea of facing a physical conflict, it was almost like it was easier for people to understand, easier for them to talk about, they knew where to refer me. But when you're a young multicultural person in a mostly white organisation, especially when I was starting out 10 years ago, it was much harder to find that support. And I think we are changing. I, I think it's a really good point. I remember when, um, it doesn't seem that long ago, George Floyd died and I had to address the newsroom, which was one of the hardest things for me to do, um, partly because it felt so personal and triggered and I, and I hadn't realized it at the time but one of the reasons why I felt it so personally for myself is because I had to sit my kids down at that point and explain to them because it was it was brought into all of our living rooms about why certain people may not like them because of the color of their skin and then having to address the newsroom about it as well particularly because I I felt it was important that we showed our particularly African-American journalists and also black journalists globally that we were um, supporting them during that time because for me, I know that it triggered a lot of racial trauma and transgenerational trauma also. And so, you know, if you've never experienced that, you wouldn't know necessarily what the triggers would be. And I certainly know that a lot of our African-American journalists who were covering the BLM protests, and, and as you know, journalists were targeted, that's a new playground for people to target journalists. You know, they found it incredibly difficult, and I had to make sure that 
all the managers knew how to spot the signs of racial trauma and not keep sending out the black journalists to go and cover a BLM protest and understanding that actually they need some rest and respite also because it could be um, incredibly triggering for them. But I think, you know, understanding how these things could be triggered in the newsroom within our journalists is really important. And to your point, Margaret, making sure that we train our managers to spot the signs and to be also be able to support them, I, I think is, is really important. We have a peer-to-peer, what we call a peer-to-peer network at Reuters that we set up in 2015, and it's journalists around the world who have been trained to actually be on the end of a phone for any journalist, because journalists like to talk to other journalists about the trauma that they may be going through or the stresses of work that they might be going through at, at any particular time. And that's coupled with the CIC trauma program that we have, which journalists around the world have access to. They can you know, reach out to any sort of psychologist around the world who are trained at dealing with journalists in particular, because I think that is key. There's been so many different elements of safety that we've discussed in the last kind of 20 minutes or so. I'm really curious to hear your questions. And I want to ask you, Mike, there's a question here. What would you say is the first practical step to start changing the situation, especially re-online and digital abuse? Well, I think we are actually taking the first step. The first step is actually to just sort of acknowledge that it's a problem and to really look at what potential solutions are out there. It really strikes me we have a lot of good research these days about the scope of it, how certain people are affected more by it, how certain groups are affected more by it. But what we really kind of lack is uh, solutions around it, really good research into what actually sort of works in, in reducing it and how newsrooms and journalists can actually sort of battle back. I think one of the things that strikes me that together we're stronger. I do strongly believe that, you know, in terms of solidarity, you know, we can put pressure in places that we might not be able to do so alone you know the wealth and support of the kind of of folks from the public media alliance for instance the media freedom coalition it's really important that we can actually say together as we did at the not okay forum in november i'm going to come to another question now newsroom managers tend to get promoted for being tough and working long hours not necessarily for being empathetic is training for managers Lacking. Joyce, would you like to take that? How did I know you were going to come to me on that one? I I just had this feeling as soon as you started reading that out. No, it's fine. Look, you know, I I, I say, I I do say to, um, and I I am part of the leadership team, so I can can say this. I, I do say to some of our leaders, you know, look, how you manage the newsroom in the 1990s and early noughties is not necessarily going to be fully embraced today. I think certainly the millennials and Gen Zs want a newsroom where the leaders are empathetic, accessible, understand that their mental health is just as important as being best in class in terms of journalism. I'd like to think we're moving towards that now. And I do think that more training for managers, because this is a bit of a minefield for them to learn how to navigate. You know, I've had... um, some um, managers say to me, look, I, I just find it very difficult managing Gen Zs. I, I just, you know, because they, they're, <laughs> they're used to a sort of command and control and the Gen Zs would just say, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not doing that, <laughs> you know. So I think more training, you know, for managers about, you know, how to manage a cross-generational team as well as a multicultural team. And, you know, and I, I, I feel in journalism, we tend to promote people 
on how good they are as journalists as opposed to how good they are at managing people. Yeah, good managing. journalists don't make good managers, yeah, you know, do so they? I, I think there yeah. needs to be a lot more emphasis on people management as well as journalism. And I think, you know, we're trying to get that balance right. And, you know, I think it's an ongoing journey. Thanks, Joyce. I'm really conscious of the fact that I had a conversation a few months ago with a group of managers around safety and mental health, and I actually paused to ask them how they were. And almost every single manager in that conversation said to me, nobody's asked me how I am. And I, I think that managers themselves are squeezed too, right? Uh, they're totally squeezed. And, you know, there's a lot of moral injury there mm. as well, you know. So, you know, they feel that they are being squeezed from the top. You know, they're getting it from the bottom. Um, you know, we're asking them to do stuff, you know, they don't necessarily agree with. The moral injury kicks in. They don't feel that anyone listens to them. And they just feel that they're constantly being put upon. You know, I'm very empathetic towards managers um, also because I think they've got a lot on their plate. They've got to, you know, we ask them to make sure that the, the file is the best but also keep your people happy, you know, and, and sometimes the two don't always play very nicely. To this point about managers, I often feel like, um, not, not all again, but uh, having sort of um, gone at the youngs, I'll, I'll sort of go at the olds. They can't actually conceive sometimes of the idea of a troll. They can't actually sort of think that somebody would interact with a journalist in bad faith. That somebody who sends a message is just sort of a complaint or warded wrongly, because they haven't been at the end of this, you know, because they haven't been maybe out in the field for the last 10 years or so since, you know, social media became sort of a vector for this kind of stuff. So a lot of the time, you know, when I'm sort of talking to senior managers is sort of explaining actually what this stuff is. You know, who's, who, who are these people who are sending us this stuff that says, you're scum. They're not trying to improve our services. You know, they do not have a nuanced position on the BBC license fee. You know, they're, they're out to damage, right? They're out to sort of cause harm. And, you know, what do we do about that? That's the, that's the sort of they next want, question. They want to silence us, right? They want to silence the messenger. Right. And, and they're, take, they're targeting us. And it becomes very personal, as, as you've both mentioned, kind of very personal. Very, it becomes very racist. It becomes very sexist. It becomes horrifically... Violent. Violent. I mean, some of the, you know, we become the kind of conditions to just accept this. I'm, I'm curious, Isabella, you know, we're seeing global research suggesting that journalists are now leaving their jobs. Younger people are being prevented from joining or deciding against joining journalism because of this toll of safety issues that they're receiving. What would your kind of reaction to that be? I think, picking up on what these two have said, I do think you get pretty good at knowing who is legitimate and illegitimate and who is just someone having a bad day trying to bring you down. Like the other day I had one that I could only laugh at because they said, you're an impartial swear word, get a nose job. Like the nose job was going to fix it. You know, it's just completely ridiculous and bizarre. Uh, but I think it's not always easy to be able to decipher that or to not take it so incredibly personally when you've given up all these hours of your life to this story or this project. So I think there's work to be done for employees and how you can put distance, distance yourself from it, but also for managers and supporting people when they're experiencing this because it is very real. You know, it, it looks like it's not, but it affects you in every single way. So I think it is a phenomenon that we're going to have to find solutions for pretty quickly or we will see people walking out the door. What would you say to your managers in terms of 
you know, what could they do better to support you and, and younger journalists to, to be able to counter this? I mean, what are some of the solutions that you would like to see brought about? Uh, if I had them, I might be the manager. No, <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I think it's sometimes this goes a bit beyond, I think, digital safety, but like, I don't think it's that difficult to sometimes just recognise when someone needs a break. You know, when someone is so worked up, they're so heightened. Going to Margaret's point um, about how sometimes you feel trauma much after it happened, I found generally whether it be you're the subject of a pile-on or, or whatnot, or what we like to call pile-ons, there is support immediately. But sometimes you, it's the weeks, the months, the years later that you need the support and the trauma shows up in strange ways. It might be a lack of motivation, you might be quite difficult to work with suddenly, you might be shooting ideas down. And that's sometimes how trauma is expressed because you're not willing to show up for your job because you feel so hurt and burdened by it. So I think that's not really a solution in any way, is it? But um, empathy, I think, even though that's the dirty word we've just discussed. Oh, I don't think it's a dirty yeah. word. I, I really don't. I think empathy is, is key. I think you can be an empathetic journalist. I think you can be an empathetic manager. I think you can be an empathetic leader. I think as long as you're authentic with it, I think, you know, I think it's a powerful thing. I don't think it's a dirty word. But I, to, to your point on, you know, people leaving, I, I think that's a, a massive concern. And I think also attracting people in. You know, my 13-year-old daughter told me recently that she wanted to be a photojournalist, you know, and I was beaming with pride. Um, and that quickly turned to dread. <laughs> because I realised gosh, when she's an adult, you know, what is journalism going to look like? Mm. What is her safety going to look like? What is online abuse going to look like then? So I, I do think we need to get a grip with this. Otherwise, I think it could really harm our industry overall. I'd like to ask both you, Mike, and you, Margaret, in terms of given everything we've discussed today, this kind of escalation in terms of safety issues and, and violence and online and the mental health toll, What's kind of one thing either that you do to support your own mental health or one thing that you would like to see within your newsroom to help your organisation better perhaps address some of the risks to safety? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the things that I make a point to do is every so often we do have an online mental health session. We have specialists in the BBC. We're really fortunate who, you know, are really sort of good at this kind of thing. So periodically, even though... There may not be a, a current sort of, you know, issue or, you know, there may not be a, a pylon that happened in the last two weeks. We'll sit together as a team and we'll just kind of, you know, have one of those sessions to talk about some of the issues, really. So that's one of the things that we try and, and build in. And I'd like to see more of that kind of regular approach. Um, Margaret? Um, I do think that, as you say, Mike, you know, that the sort of the internal discussions, we have a very close bureau here, but I've certainly noticed since the pandemic, we used to go back to Canada to have, um, they'd bring the, the people in the foreign bureaus back to have kind of face-to-face -face with your managers and with other colleagues, because certainly I know that a lot of my colleagues had have real issues with, with the uh, truckers protest in Canada because they were out there and subject to this abuse head on. You know, it made me think of being in, in Dresden covering a far right 
demonstration and having people calling us Lügenpresse, you know, which is an old Nazi term. Uh, the, the Nazis used it, lying press. They weaponized it against the American media. So we, there are experiences that we're all having but sharing. And I know this is a very particular thing to our organization and that we have bureaus out there. But I think that that kind of communication is, is really important. I'm going to come in the last minute or so just to, to, to you, Mike, if that's okay, because you are, have been kind of, you've written, a, authored a book on the alt-right, you've done a huge amount of work around disinformation. In terms of legislation, given this is so fast-paced and so quick-moving, is there anything that we can legitimately expect of legislation to, to combat this issue? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I, without wanting to sort of like comment directly, because obviously the BBC has strict impartiality rules, I'm generally sort of a, a skeptic about legislation. I just think that the, that the issue is so much wider than that and so much more sort of um, cultural than that and, and sort of ingrained. If legislation, if a sweeping legislation um, happened in America, I perhaps would be maybe less skeptical about its impact, but it doesn't appear that there's, you know, huge amounts of um, political will for that to happen. Call me a cynic, but I think that actually we have to kind of develop the solutions ourselves. I think cynic is a journalist's middle name, isn't it? So, right. so I, um, and I think, you know, to that point, again, you know, picking up on what you just said, Joyce, let's focus on what we can control. Um, when we send journalists into war zones, we don't tell the combatants to put down their arms. I mean, we'd like to try to do so, right? But we don't try to kind of insist that they do that. But we prepare our journalists to go in safely and to come out safely as well with the right equipment and tools and, 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 and kit. I am going to wrap it up there. We could carry on talking for... Just, go just ahead, of course. Point, which is just about legislation and, and not necessarily in terms of online harassment. But we are starting to see groups like Reporters Without Borders actually making legal cases. They, for instance, uh, are, you know, have taken to the International Criminal Court a request to investigate the um, murders of so many journalists in Afghanistan since uh, over the past couple of years. I mean, obviously, it's been going on for decades. We've seen with Shireen Abu Akla's killing, even before that, we've seen the same organizations referring some of these cases to the International Criminal Court. You know, will there ever be justice for Jamal Khashoggi? Maybe not, but I actually personally, I, I am happy to see it because it's a little bit, it's, you're, it's, the, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. We are in a fight and we do have to stand up. It's not the journalists place in a way. You know, I feel uncomfortable being here on some, on some levels and talking about these issues, you know, it, but we have to be our own advocates in terms of what we're doing. And I think that that's a way of doing it. And hopefully it can make some small difference. I really worry about the fact that, that young people don't want to come into this profession and that they don't see it as the jewel that it should be seen as. It's so important. And that's why I appreciate, actually, the opportunity to be here and also seeing, even though journalists and politicians don't sit easily side by side, but even these kinds of forums and these kinds of discussions, because governments pressure other governments. And Joyce, you were talking about um, Mexico earlier, and I think I was reading a statistic recently about that, about the rise in the number of journalists killed in Mexico. It's gone up by 85% over the last three years since 
the election of a media bashing president. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a media bashing president in the United States too. So it's kind of like a call to arms in a way. And we only know those that were ki killed, there's plenty who've been disappeared, yeah. you know, yeah. so. Yeah. Um, thank you to all of our panelists. Um, I think that it was a really important point to finish on. You know, this idea that journalism matters, journalism has a massive impact in terms of securing press freedom, in terms of securing democracy. We have to work together in terms of journalists, communities and politicians as well. It's been an honour to be on the stage with you, with Mike, Margaret, Joyce and Isabella. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to Media Uncovered. If you'd like to find out more about any of the themes or topics discussed in this episode, you can head to our website, www.publicmediaalliance.org, where we have resources, reports and studies on these subjects. If you'd like to keep up to date with us on social media, you can follow us at Public Media PMA on Twitter and on Facebook at Public Media Alliance. Our thanks to Hannah Storm for hosting the panel. Our sincere thanks to CBC Radio Canada and Canada House for helping coordinate the event, which was held in part to commemorate 100 years of public service media, a significant milestone which we will be marking in a future episode. Our thanks as ever to Lucas Thompson, Rachel Still and Tom Brazier for writing the music. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast and we'll be back for a new episode next month.